0: Welcome to the Tech Sales Show, where we are dedicated to making you a better tech seller. Sharing tried and true sales strategies and answering your questions weekly.
1: Hey, hey, Bobby. What's up, Brian?
0: Well, we are on the final episode of Series 16. This is all about deals and lessons learned. Today, we're going to talk about uh, value selling and beyond. So, uh, the first episode, we talked about how we got into tech sales. The second, we talked about kind of the maturation and move into professional sales. The third, uh, last week, we talked about um, best practices. So, once you kind of start to nail that day job, how do you really start to contribute back to the business and be seen as a as a leader? Uh, whether you're an individual contributor or a manager, how do you start to to add kind of exponential value back to the company that you work for? Because with that exponential value comes promotions, it comes stock awards, it comes bonuses. It it's more than just the commission that you're winning off of deals. So, again, today we're going to talk about value selling and beyond. And I thought the the first point we could talk about there, Bobby, was our move to SparkHound. So for those that are, are, are new to listening to the podcast, Bobby and I worked together at Microsoft for a number of years. And then Bobby, you left to, uh, SparkHound was one of the pan- partners that you managed kind of early on. So you saw their kind of growth and development and saw opportunities for them to to grow and change. Um, what led you to leave Microsoft to uh, open up and to be a leader at the Sparkown Houston location and and really for the entire corporate uh, environment.
1: Yeah. I think, I think I got tired of being a small fish in a big pond with Microsoft. Um, Times were tough in 2007 and eight oil was probably at its second worst phase compared to like the last five years uh, in Houston, um, which impacted the market tremendously. But I think, I think I was going through a lot of just change in general, and tired of tired of following the corporate deck. I had no flexibility in some of the things I wanted to try with the team. I think I think Microsoft knew that was a problem that they, that they were trying to solve for, but they weren't solving it fast enough for me. Um, and I, I, you were a rep on my team who closed a a monster deal, a deal that I would say was, you know, thirty deals. In, in of average deal size it was 30 deals for mid-market back in those de- days i forgot um, about that yeah and i and i literally from the regional vice president got good job in an email uh from the wind wire. and i just i just man that there was a kick in the gut that and i don't necessarily attribute it to her and and the leadership team as much as it was just kind of the final straw, right? I had just been on a one-on-one with Steve Ballmer um, and that was lackluster. It was, it did not meet my expectations. I remember getting out of that limo telling my wife I was going to leave within the year. I mean, it was, it was continuously building that I I thought we were getting a little too cocky and a little too starchy. Um, And I didn't, didn't see a path forward necessarily to be, to be able to reach my potential, no pun intended, because that was their slogan, as a sales leader in that organization by just just reiterating the same corporate deck, right? I wanted to go make my mark somewhere else. And around that time, I had had dinner with uh, the president and founder of SparkHound and asked him if we closed a $30 million deal or something like that, $3 million deal. Maybe well, I don't remember. It was huge. It was $3 million and we were selling average $100,000 deals in those days, Um I asked him if we made 3 million for him, what would he do? And he said, share it. And I said, how do I do that? And, uh, the conversation started, um, and I bought part of the company and had a chance to, to make my, my impact on a smaller company, but be a bigger fish. And they weren't in Houston at the time and they were looking to move into Houston. And, uh, I started that office and had a piece of the company. So I was really bought in, no pun intended, and, uh, really wanted to see it grow, and it was a great company, and I had sold services, and I had sold, well, I had sold services based on a certain product uh, in my early career, and then Microsoft, I thought we sold services, because there was a services line item, but I didn't realize what really selling un, unseen services were, meaning Build a SharePoint site. Well, okay, what do you want that SharePoint site to do? And, and every little piece of conversation from that point forward is new work, which is new manpower, which is consulting, and the project needs leadership. And And I think I learned a lot about just ser- professional services sales at SparkHound, but we'll get to what I learned later on. But that, that's my story. That's how I ended up at SparkHound. Um, pretty much put my life savings at the company and bet on myself and bet on SparkHound and Two years later, I think we were playing golf, and I said to you and Jonathan, "Hey guys, you want to join me?"
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we'd always kind of um, you'd always kind of talked about how fun it was, and, and well, it was a lot of hard work too. But talked about how fun and rewarding it was, and I was kind of starting to feel the same. You know, I, I think I think a lot of people listening can probably identify with. You start to kind of think the grass is greener sometimes. And and there's certainly a lot of draw for some people to get into entrepreneurship. And this was this kind of scratched both itches, right? I was probably, you know, I'd done well at Microsoft. Felt like I didn't know kind of directionally where I was headed. I had some frustration with some of the senior leadership. And while I always stack ranked really well and did really well and always hit my, you know, I never missed a number in a full year at Microsoft, there's still some kind of stress that I didn't enjoy. And I thought, man, I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to give this a shot. So when we had that golf outing and we talked it through, it felt like just the, the perfect opportunity to, to expand the office to Dallas, which is what Jonathan and I did. And I think with that came, you know, we talked about our time at Microsoft, why it was incredibly valuable and I gained great executive presence and learned how to run deals. What SparkHound did, what Microsoft, my second time back to Microsoft did, and what Workday has done is move to more value selling and bigger deal sales. And the lessons and the challenges and of delivery and everything else and lessons in branding were, were huge. That it was it was probably the period of time, those kind of two or three years there, of the most intense learning I had professionally, which are sometimes very stressful times. You know, I learned with the big professional sports organization that was having some, some delivery challenges learned how to get involved in that and to kind of take on some of those really challenging conversations with a senior leader at a company, you know, working for a company that I owned part of those were very, very challenging conversations. Um, I learned at a big, very popular chicken restaurants, um, based here in the South. Um, that was probably the biggest learning lesson for me, Bobby, was that sales pursuit we were up against, kind of the, the 900 pound gorilla in professional services sales in the South. Somebody that, you know, the leader of that business had been selling professional services for probably 30 years and the sales rep had been doing it for at least 20 years. And here it was my first year in selling services where I'd sold products my entire career. And we talk about a lot to where when you're selling professional services, the biggest learning is you don't, there's no physical product here. Your product is your people. So there's a lot of ambiguity in that, right? There's a lot of you know what, what can you other than promise that company that I can do it what you know it was a big lesson for me to learn what how, how am I going to sell this customer that I'm better than this company that had been doing it for 30 years and it was a, it was a big learning lesson for me. How, how, did, how was it for you like what when you reflect back on that time and that shift from product sales to professional sales, sales what do you think about? Them?
1: Well, the, the ambiguity of really what were we selling and how are we doing it and, and the mistakes along the way, right? I think the, in professional sales, much like product decision-making that customers make, the the easy route is to just place somebody who's got that skill set and charge them an hourly rate. And it, it looks great on paper. It looks really good on your financial statements to – Take a SharePoint developer and give it to a company who's willing to pay well above market for a rate, so they can move them in and out at will. Meaning they don't have to deal with any of the HR stuff, um, and it's a way for them to subsidize some of their own people with little risk. So I think I think I think back to the, all the staff augmentation that I did that felt great. We grew the company. We made you know millions in revenues. Uh, but we we frustrated our employees. We didn't deliver outcomes for our customers, and it was a. I think that's the learning and the the smarts that many tenured professional services sales reps had that I didn't have, and that we were losing to because when they when they would get the question of taking a project uh, uh, a big complex SharePoint project and dumbing, getting asked to dumb it down to placing two people and a project manager on their team to get the services delivered, they would walk away from the deal because they knew that those things weren't going to work. They knew that they were going to create pain and havoc for the customer and pain and havoc for their company, and they would probably lose two or their maybe three of their best guys and girls to that project um, because they weren't going to be available to do other projects. And, yeah. and I just learned all these little intricate things that – you wouldn't know if you didn't have that experience, and I think I probably learned that experience was the biggest thing that was going to benefit me in my career, was I needed I needed these at-bats and this experience, and all the while, not really supposed to being a sales guy, uh, supposed to be a branch manager, leader of the office, a vice president of sales by title, growing the services team, growing the the sales team, growing the local business office management from front desk office manager to recruiter to I mean a million hats you don't realize all the pieces that go into those sorts of things but um, I think I look back and when I say what did I learn I learned I learned needed to learn a lot to run a company like that even as small as it was
0: yeah I, I share some of the same experiences I think sometimes i would trick myself into thinking we were not selling i would not i was not selling staff augmentation but if you're trying to sell to a a brand in this case it was a restaurant brand that that prided themselves on their branding and and the the service they delivered to their internal customers so they they kind of viewed their employees as their it kind of viewed their own employees as customers of the it products and if i'm approaching it as a Stack, staff augmentation cell which effectively what was what, what I was doing um, I, I was losing very quickly to the more senior uh, sales leaders that would come in with a very branded approach and help them kind of see the see the art of the possible and they would invest you know hours and hours and hours and and sometimes weeks uh, de- you know developing their presentations because the reward was huge in some of these cases but I, I couldn't I had kind of put myself on this treadmill of, of staff augmentation projects to where I need to get somebody busy now. So I was a little bit too short-term approached. that when I reflect back on my, my approach in the, in the office there, I, I, I was too short-term approached. And if I, if I ever did professional se- services sales again, um, I think the runway is critically important. I think staying close to your biggest customers is critically important, which sounds obvious. But when you're in it and you're running that office, Bobby, and to your point, you're picking out the carpets, you're picking out the front desk admin, like you're, you're doing a lot of the in-the-weeds kind of stuff. Uh, well, I can I think back to a customer we had in West Texas who was just growing and blowing and adding employees and adding technology, and we'd want a nice phase one project that could have been 16 phases. Um, and I didn't stay close to that phase one, and therefore when we finished phase one, guess what happened to the project? It was done. You know, they, I sold the deal. Yeah. I wasn't close to it. I should have been close to it. I should have had a hotel room in West Texas and I should have been out there two days a week because that, that prospect return customer uh, could have, could have floated our business for years and years. Um, but again, those things are hindsight and they're hard lessons to learn. Uh, and while, you know, the, the office got, you know, quote unquote profitable fairly quick it was a, it was very much a, a business that was being run on a treadmill. And, uh, that's a tiring way to run a business. That was a big it was a big learning lesson for me professionally.
1: Well, in Houston, when, when we got to, I guess some, some regular revenues and some more people on the team, the turnover became a big problem because people that were delivering the work didn't like the staff augmentation. They didn't like the feel of working for another company and, Boy, I learned a lot around that stuff. And, and I don't know that I'd ever go back to professional services now because it's tough. The emotions, the people, the problems that people have, the problems that we have. I mean, it's it's just really, really difficult to, to deal with those with everything else that was going on. Uh, products are not as emotional for sure, uh, but they come dead on arrival sometimes. But it really it really taught me that I needed to think bigger picture. And I learned a lot about bigger picture. Um and that was both in customer deals and how we would get those deals to go from something to something else. Right. So, um, I, we got a call, I'm a golfer. We got a call from a golf ball company who they were doing some things very manually and wanted to change it and write an application and their budget was tiny. And we just, we pretty much stood firm. We, We can't do it for that budget, but we created, collectively as a team, we created some good decks. We created some good prototypes. We created a story that said, this is what this will do for you in the next five years. And we took a, we'll call it a $20,000 budget and turned it into a $150,000 budget and a phase one of a project that probably ended up being a half million dollar project, making and saving that company millions of dollars over five years, probably, in the manual work they were doing and uh, I still see their golf balls on the shelf, so they must still be in business using our applications that we wrote, um, but it it's so hard in some of those instances where you think you're going to win, uh, and I'll never forget, in their deck, I, I took a picture of a $100 bill and put in the deck, and I think the word was expensive on like the, right before the pricing slide, because I wanted to warn them of the sticker shock they were about to see, but but I also wanted them to know the ROI we were going to bring them and it was cash. We were going to make them some cash with that. And that's the title of this episode is value selling. And I don't think we learned how to do that when we were selling a product that was priced per user for a certain number of years by year. Um, We, I was really good at tricking people to believe that the EA was just as important as their coffee subscription. You know, I mean, you're paying that to give your people coffee. You've got to keep paying this. And it was more of an insurance policy that I was selling the the recurrence of, not the value. I mean, of course, I talked about the productivity that Office would bring and the security that Windows Server and SQL would bring. But it wasn't value that, that we're going to write you an application and transform your company for years to come um, we're going to take 20 people's jobs and automate them with a robot and some software um, and then we'll repurpose those people if you don't want to get rid of them but that's powerful stuff that's that's something that you say Jane makes you pay Jane 50 grand her insurance is 10 grand. And all of her other benefits are another 10 grand. She costs you 70K. I can take that away, put it into software, and you can reuse that for five years. That's worth $350,000. That's simple math. That's fun. And, and when you can create that and you know the, the inner workings of what those applications take to make, man, that's fun selling, but it's not easy. And the sales cycles are not 90 days, sometimes they're years.
0: Yeah, I think my it, it started to shift for me really at Sparkle that kind of that shift to business outcomes and value. I started to recognize that what kind of got me there wasn't gonna uh, get me to the next level, um, and that furthered as I moved I moved back to Microsoft. So I went back to Microsoft to sell Dynamics CRM to large enterprise customers, and you know the time then and still today Salesforce is the the nine hundred pound gorilla in the market. Uh, Microsoft was obviously well known from a brand standpoint, but certainly not well known from a from a from a CRM perspective. Salesforce cornered the market, so it was um, it was an interesting it was interesting for me in my career. I, I definitely had the executive presence to to work with these big companies, but day in day out working with COOs, VP of Sales, CFOs of these companies, I think that's where I really learned professionally that that's where my passion was, is selling these really complex, long sell cycle deals for big wins, but on the basis that we would provide good, solid business outcomes for these customers. And, and, and today, the work that I we do at, at Workday is all focused around those business outcomes. And I, we, we delivered a business case for a for customer this week, and we were asserting that we would, help them achieve 12 business outcomes. And these were all directly tied to their industry, the previous systems they were on and the challenges that they were facing. And it's not just about this hypothesis. It's actually real results that we've helped other companies achieve. And And selling that for me is is game-changing. And I, I think I really started to appreciate that. Late stages in my career at Softchoice, selling professional services, that kind of ambiguous sell, turned it up a bit at Microsoft my second time they are selling to large enterprises. And then it's even at a whole nother level selling big ERP systems at Workday.
1: It's a lot of fun. It's there's a different level of stress and a different level of compensation and risk that goes along with it. But if you are a pro, but you are a pro uh, and you, you know the products and you learn those business value points and you're talking to real business people um, that, that, that that also all of a sudden have real budget to move the company forward, um, it's a different ball game. And while I think at Microsoft and other places I heard sell high, I know the kind of deals you're doing. I know the kind of decisions that companies were making with my big EMC solutions in the enterprise space. You know, you're talking eight digit deals. Um, people have to be able to move mountains and organizations to make that happen, and yeah. it's a lot of fun for sure so you went back to microsoft and and you started selling you were on the o- online services division you were selling i believe customer relationship management software crm that was you weren't the, that wasn't the big gorilla you weren't office in a workplace yeah. where office had the market share you were crm had been around for 8 years but salesforce had been around for 10 years like you were way behind uh, in an in an industry selling software with the big behemoth, but not the big behemoth market share leader <laughs> yeah um what 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 did you learn the most about that from the other side of the market share value chain
0: uh well that's a good one i the I still had the benefit of Microsoft being a well known brand and and so those of you that have worked with Microsoft or worked at Microsoft know that there are some there are some Microsoft fanboys out there and that's a great group to sell to. <laughs> so if you're selling the 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 value of having a single platform for all your productivity tools, your infrastructure and by the way your CRM system to manage your your sales interactions and, and service tickets and so forth. There was some there was some great uh, good continuity story there. The benefit that some of the best of breed providers offer best of breed providers offer is that like a salesforce as an example is that they have these enormous ecosystems around them and that's the same benefit microsoft has from a productivity standpoint so if you look at exchange there's there may be a better mail system out there than exchange but what makes exchange so bulletproof is that there's such a huge ecosystem built around it of partners that can deliver really well tools that can provide great spam protection and and business continuity in this big, huge ecosystem surrounding kind of the Microsoft offering. Um, and, and that's what Salesforce, that's the advantage Salesforce had over over Microsoft CRM back then, is that Salesforce had this great ecosystem of deployment partners, had this great, you know, if they needed a quoting tool built into the CRM system, Salesforce had that as part of their ecosystem. And, and Microsoft didn't have that. So it, it really, it, relationships were huge, um, Doing really tailored uh, customized demo, highly configured demos was key. Really building big business cases were key. The differentiation had to be on understanding their business and showing them they could get it done another way that would better fit into their overall infrastructure. And sometimes they believe it, Bobby, and sometimes they didn't. You know, sometimes they were like, look, I get it. It's it's probably a little bit cheaper even than Salesforce, and I get that we have our entire infrastructure built on Microsoft but I can't pass up the market leader at Salesforce. So that was a, they were a tough competitor for sure.
1: Well, also in, in my view of it, and I don't know if it's the same then or today, but you know, the, the, the cost of change is something that is very hard to put a value on, but people, companies, customers, they know it's going to cost a lot of pain. It might not be dollars, but okay, I'm going to, take my CRM who's got every proposal and every opportunity and every customer contact that I've ever had. And I'm going to switch that system yeah. with a new interface that has a different mobile app or a different web page. And I mean, that's a lot, that's a lot. And I'm going to impact that with my sales team, which we just talked about a couple of weeks ago that you would do anything to save your sales team time. Now you're going to implement a new system. That's going to cost me time. I got to train all my employees I mean, there's some some companies I can say don't even talk to me about changing my CRM ever because the cost of change yeah. will be just too much. It'll be millions and millions of dollars. I'm not going to do it. So that's, that's where I think value selling changes when you start talking about cost of change. That's probably the same thing Google struggles with from a Google Apps perspective in the Microsoft that that's been done for decades, you know, I'm not going to make someone who knows how to use Excel use sheets, even if they don't Mm -hmm. use the powerful functions. Why would I take that away and make them make them change? If I lose two days of productivity a week from them, that's, that's 40%. That's a lot of money. Um, so that's where I think as value sellers later in our career, we both got better at understanding and believing before we even chase the deal. Would it be worth the cost of change to this customer to do it a different way, and can I supersede that cost of change through value and long-term cost back to the business for them to even see it? And I, I think you win when you do, and you lose yeah. when you don't.
0: Yeah, it certain it certainly has its stressors. If if you're someone that appreciates kind of a monthly uh, commission rather than kind of a, and, and again, this is I'm, I'm kind of. You know, it's going to vary company by company that you work for. But if you're someone that appreciates kind of a more consistent uh, commission month to month and you're not interested in all the risk, going into this kind of sales is probably not for you. But if you're someone that you know could go a year and then maybe have a massive win that would be equal to more commissions than you'd earned in the previous five years, then this could be something interesting for you. But these prospects can sell, can smell desperation the folks that you're working with can smell the desperation. The CFO, the COO, the CEO. I was meeting with a CEO of a company on Monday of a billion dollar company. That CEO can smell a desperate sales rep. You got to be on your game. You got to have a very strong value message. You have to know their business inside and out. Um, you invest weeks um, preparing presentations. Uh, months and sometimes years in the sales cycle and again it's all a spectrum right there could be value cells that uh, that transact on a, on a monthly turnaround cycle but there are some that go two years uh, but it's a, it is a more it, for some people it's a more compelling and intellectual approach and they really like it but with that comes a lot of stress and, and you know it's not maybe it's not all about that for you maybe you maybe you really enjoy what it is you're doing but if, if you're interested in kind of heading, heading that direction, I know Bobby and I both would be happy to to talk to you and talk about some of the companies that are doing this today.
1: Don't be average people go after the, <laughs> go after whatever you want to go after. Just don't be average. That's right. And so from there, I mean, you talk about value hypothesis a lot. We've, yeah. we've, we've, we've done a lot of podcast conversations around value hypothesis, but I assume sometime around the second trip back to Microsoft or, or in that phase where that's where value hypothesis became a big deal for you. And, Uh, we definitely talk about, we, we know how to pitch a customer today on our stuff, whatever that stuff is in a way that they, they see value before they even start talking product. And that's because it's in the name. It's our value hypothesis.
0: That's exactly it. So for me, it was, you know, there's, there's, again, there's a spectrum of how do you turn, how do you get into the door for a prospect? And one approach could be, one approach could be, Hey, I'll, um, I'll take you to lunch. One approach could be, hey, if you watch our webinar, we'll, we'll buy you and your team free lunch. Um, that may work for more transactional volume sales uh, for, a, for a CFO or a COO. They don't care about your free lunch at all because the reality, Bobby, is a CFO or a COO, if they're gonna accept that free lunch from somebody they don't even know, the fact is they're probably not gonna be in that role for very long. And and so that's what leads to the value hypothesis. And this is really an approach that's not unique. I know a lot of companies do this today. It's part of challenge or sell in many ways. And that's basically helping a prospective customer understand the potential outcomes they could achieve by moving to your product or service. And and that's not an easy thing to do. It's not something you whip up in in 10 minutes. It's something that may take 10 hours to accomplish. You may have to read your 10K, which by the way, is a good time to plug the work that the guys at tech sales lab are doing. If you want to better understand how to read a 10 K and translate that into, into what customers are looking to buy. It just so happens that we've, the uh, we've got a 10 K video there, Bobby. It's one that uh, I recorded. It's, it's 10 bucks. So go to TechSalesLab.com, go to the Masters section there and you can, you can listen to that and watch a video. And we actually, we kind of break it all down. And then if you've got somebody that's looking to get into tech sales, somebody that's, not in tech sales today. They didn't, um, you know, they, they see what you're doing from a career perspective. They're interested in, in, in getting into technology sales. There are some pathway programs to help them achieve that. But really the core around this Bobby is and the value hypothesis is just helping take a step back, understand what the prospect's challenges are, helping align business outcomes that other customers have achieved to those their, their business problems. And then hypothesizing that this is what we could help you fix. Here's what we've heard from you. Here's what we read on your 10K. Here's what we've helped another company achieve. Could we get 15 minutes to talk about this? Maybe that's the time you ask for the lunch. Could, could I take you to lunch and explain to you what we've what we've helped another company achieve? Because we've noticed this is something you're trying to solve at your company.
1: No doubt. And it, it screams value, right? Like It would be similar if we used the bike analogy that we've talked about earlier, that okay, I know you want a bike. You don't have a bike. I have a bike. I have a bike that's your size. I have a bike that will work for you. I have a bike that you won't have to invest in special pedals or wheels or rims. And if you're looking to spend X amount of dollars on a bike, we should spend time together. I mean, that. You're, if you're in the market for a bike, you're probably going to respond. And if you could take those things and go above and beyond a bike example and say a company in your industry just did a similar thing, to solve a problem that you probably have, it's saving them X amount of dollars on a quarterly basis and put three headcount back into the business to do other things, that's probably going to be worth someone's time, whether it's lunch, 15 minutes to talk, 30 minutes on the phone. You're probably going to have better propositions to, to have conversations. But in the like of that, you can't just say, I've got faster storage than the other guy and you should talk to me about that 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 that's average that's junior right um yeah so you definitely need to find a better way to to, to state that value and, and learn how to deliver your own value hypothesis for, for your company and then maybe share it back with your team uh, and get some recognition for doing that
0: certainly so that bobby we're gonna we're gonna wrap up the series here uh, we want to thank everyone for um the feedback throughout the series it's been some good dialogue uh, that we've had on linkedin and through email. So we we thank everyone for their engagement and their questions and so forth. Um, So with that, average is the enemy. Average sucks. Don't be average. Have a great week, everyone.
1: Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Tech Sales Show. Subscribe to our email list at www.techsaleshow.com
0: and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Tech Sales Show. Until next week average is the enemy